Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Friendly Design Co. is looking for a UX UI designer. They are looking for candidates in Washington, D.C. or Omaha, Nebraska, but are also open to remote applicants. Aptio Inc. is looking for a product designer, too. This is a remote position. Work & Co. is looking for a number of different positions. A lead developer, a senior QA analyst, a designer, and a lead designer. Now, all these positions are located in Brooklyn, New York, but the lead developer and senior QA analyst positions have hybrid work schedules. Bravely is looking for a sales development manager in New York City. Duo Security, now a part of Cisco, is looking for a senior design engineer. Vote.org is looking for a product analyst. This is a remote position. And GBH is looking for a motion designer slash editor in Boston, Massachusetts. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Vita Cornelius, VP of Creative at New York Times Advertising. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Vita Cornelius. I am the Vice President of Creative for New York Times Advertising, and I oversee all the custom creative and the operations of our content studio, T-Brand. What has this year been like for you so far? <laughs> it's funny how to answer that because, you know, as we all know, 2020 was was definitely a challenge. And mm -hmm. I would say 2021 has been a year of like recovery, you know, in many ways, like coming off of of that year, you know, a year of reckoning, so to speak. Like, I just feel like there was a lot of emotions. You know, we all processed. It felt like, you know, 2021 was a, a time to heal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So 
Personally, I feel like I've definitely learned the meaning of resilience over the course of this year. And staying the course, you know, staying focused has been my personal mantra in the workplace. You know, as a leader, for one, I've really been trying to be as empathetic to my team as possible. I've really had to dig in and think about everyone is processing this whole upheaval in so many different ways and in some cases loss. So I want to be mindful of that when I'm still trying to manage and, and, you know, manage to the demands of the business. Mm. So, yeah, that's what the year has kind of been for me. Are you already back in the office or are you still kind of working from home? No, we're working from home still, but, you know, we can go into the office as we choose. We have no we haven't officially returned, you know, but I go in probably like two days a week now. Okay. Um, Yeah. And so does some of the other people on the team. How was it sort of adjusting to that kind of work from home life with, you know, being over, I would imagine, a pretty large creative team? Yeah, it it was a challenge, you know, at first to really think about the ebb and flow of how to make sure people stay motivated. I also think there were fears that people may have had on the team, thinking that their currency of not being able to walk the halls and talk to people and be seen was going to be, you know, somehow affect their work and, and the perception of their work. But I think once we all kind of settled into a groove of what needed to get done, just kind of putting our heads down and understanding that, hey, this collaborative work style, you know, being on Zoom calls, we can still brainstorm, we can still utilize one another to get inspired creatively. It did the work didn't suffer. You know, we kind of set a path and and then sort of like drove full steam ahead towards it. So I would say that actually people found their own ways to be productive, you know, working from home. And still, you know, maintaining a level of integrity and excellence with the work that that I was personally looking for. I talked to so many folks sort of, I guess, right at the beginning of the pandemic, like spring going into the summer. And it was interesting because you have folks that were definitely seizing creatives that were like, oh, I'm trying to like adjust to how do I work from home? Like some people, for example, got a new job, moved across country, and then they may have worked in the office for two days. And now it's you have to work from home in this new place that you just moved to. But then, like, I also talked to graduates who, like, had just started new jobs. And this is sort of all they know is working from home. Like, this is their normal as it sort of relates to doing a creative job is working from home and being a part of a distributed team, which I think is a really interesting shift. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that because I I don't want to necessarily say it's generational, but for sure you know, like myself coming up in the industry where it was very much about brainstorming and and sitting in a room and hashing out ideas, you get very accustomed to the tactile nature of working with people face to face and sharing ideas, you know, back and forth, bantering back and forth with a partner and all that kind of thing. So the working from home could feel very isolating for some, you know, and feel like there becomes you know, a little bit more writer's block. You feel a little bit more stuck because you want someone to bounce ideas off of, or you want to be able to just have someone to dialogue with or talk to about, talk through ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't feel, you know, as natural, you know, if you have to do that over a Zoom call, but you're a hundred percent right. I mean, there were people who started, you know, obviously started new jobs during the pandemic where they never met anyone. So it is interesting to see you get a different perception of the value of the connection you make personally with people when you've when you've had an opportunity to work with them versus just meeting them for the first time in in the square on the screen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think also I think for all of us it it uh illustrates just like 
how much we have to do during the day, especially like if you're just at home working by yourself and you don't have those moments of camaraderie of just like talking to someone for a few minutes and then getting back to work. Like you realize just how much you have to be focused on like getting the work done. Not saying people slack off at work, but people slack off at work. But like, that's also part of the the creative kind of process in a way. Right. Exactly. I used to make a joke that everybody, you know, for, for folks who, who were smokers, it used to be a thing to go downstairs for, you know, those people who go downstairs, have a cigarette break. Yeah. You add up those breaks. That was like an hour, an extra hour. (laughs) But, you know, now it's it's funny because, you know, working from home, I'll be honest. Hey, in between a meeting or two, of course, I'm going to go throw some clothes in the laundry, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to clean up my uh, kitchen or something that I neglected doing. So, you know, there do become these moments in the day where you can kind of woosah, I guess, you know, take the pressure off slightly for a moment, Mm -hmm. you know, take your mind away from it and then come back. But I still find that for the most part, I, my experience with my team has been that people are very productive and and uh, responsive, which is great. And I mean, it also sounds like you allowed them just kind of the grace to just acclimate themselves to the situation, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, the hardest part about the pandemic for everybody was just trying to figure out, and I hate using the term new normal, but what was going to just be their way of operating, you know, rather it was, I don't have children, but I felt for people who had kids at home mm-hmm. who were trying to figure out how to homeschool and still be attentive at work, but having very restless children at home that didn't understand the whole scenario of not being able to go to school or see friends or having their own, you know, kind of emotional meltdowns of sorts, you know, and that was a lot. That was a lot for for people to process and deal with and also just trying to deal with how to work and be productive. Yeah. Um, for sure, we saw it in the real estate boom where people just literally realized, especially living in New York, like raising a family in a one bedroom or two bedroom apartment just wasn't the move anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> ran to the suburbs. Of course, we saw that. So that I think is also a manifestation of how the pandemic just changed all of our perception around the value of work and how that balance between work and personal, you know, has to be reevaluated. Yeah. Let's talk some more about your work at the New York Times. What's kind of an average day like for you? The day is, well, you know, as we just said, I mean, it's it's definitely full of Zoom calls, I would say from a pretty stream, pretty steady stream of them from nine to probably about 6 p.m. But for the most part, you know, I feel like right now uh, the majority of what I'm doing is a tremendous amount of work around new initiatives, product development, you know, working with our newsroom on any types of uh brand collaborations where appropriate or alignments. But the team has really been, you know, delivering some imaginative custom content. You know, I oversee all of our creatives. So working with the team on uh, what those creative franchises are or brand stories and collaborations we're doing. So I'm really excited about that. I mean, an average day definitely is meeting with my direct reports, attending to operations type <laughs> type uh, needs, making sure that there's a full, you know, kind of outline of what we're trying to accomplish with regards to a certain number of RFPs or making sure that a program is launching or we're doing recruiting. So, you know, it it varies in the course of a day what I have to turn my attention to, but I always try and make sure there's a very nice chunk of my day committed to creative endeavors. So I would say if I had to break it down, probably 65% of my time is something creatively motivated. And the other 35% of my time is operational. 
So speaking of projects, there's a, a project from the Times that you were a part of or, or oversaw called uh, Soul of Us. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me some more about that? Sure. As an overall, I'll start by saying as an overall philosophy uh, of the creative team in T-Brand, you know, we adhere to what we call our storytelling commitment. And it's how we really keep diverse perspectives at the forefront and pursue representative storytelling in everything that we do. So there's been a few programs that actually are great manifestations of this passion for diversity and inclusion, Soul of Us being one of them and probably the primary one. And it is a franchise, a creative franchise that was created by T-Brand, really to expand the narrative around all aspects of the Black life in America that are rarely portrayed in the media. And what I mean by that is, you know, it really is a franchise that we are crafting in collaboration with brand partners to give voice to Black creators, to tell stories of Black love and joy and success and beauty and pride and wealth and empowerment and progress. The more brands that join us, the more chapters of this story we will unfold. And the reason we do it is because at the time uh, that Soul of Us was concepted, there was so much narrative around, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and the opposite side of that coin of like, why should a Black life matter? All lives matter. You know, we saw a lot of that. And Soul of Us was a way of saying, you know what? The only way to help people understand what a black life, why a black life matters is to really show them what a black life is. Mm-hmm. And more of black life is it's beyond the narrative that we've seen, you know, which is the narrative around disenfranchisement and struggle and the fight for equality. You know, there's so many other aspects of black life that media doesn't really portray. So Soul of Us was an opportunity to expose some of those more nuanced, beautiful stories in a way that shows that Black life really is rich and full and robust and worthy of a narrative larger than just what the media has currently shared. So that was the impetus behind that franchise. I like that it's called like Soul of Us. Like it's not, well, I think if if someone were looking at it and not really thinking about it as, as us, it could also be seen as like Soul of US, like Soul of the United States. But yeah. <laughs> I remember reading through the press release and it was mentioned that like it's about helping brands elevate the conversation of representation in America. And I know that sort of during that last summer when there was so much going on in the streets and of course that spilled over into the boardrooms and such and theoretically speaking because nobody really was in boardrooms because of the pandemic but companies were now starting to get in on this conversation around racial equity and like what does that mean for us and this individual business like yes there's what's happening out in the streets in terms of protesting police brutality but like our black employees are like unfortunately they suffer from that as well like they have to inherit all of that trauma and that pain and they have to bring that to work like i think it was really good that companies were starting to try to at least in some small way get in on the conversation even if it seems like it was just a fleeting thing i remember you know kind of seeing now how a lot of companies have sort of faded back from that initial kind Mm -hmm. of uh talk about it but i think it was good to see it when it happened certainly right yeah i mean there were a few brands that misstepped you know and It felt as if it was a a passing fancy for them or something that was a sort of a trend to get in on at the time. Mm -hmm. And the things that we really wanted to make sure as we put this franchise out in the universe, it was to make sure we were letting brands know, hey, this is an opportunity for you to join us in telling these stories on a narrative. It's not for the purpose of you being able to 
rectify any wrongs that, that has been done in the past by your brand, but rather to support what should be a part of your mission. So if your mission is, say, to put out products for the betterment of families, then let's tell stories of why Black family is important. You can support that. That's already in your DNA. So we weren't asking any, we were very specific about the type of brand partners or, and collaborators we were looking for as a way of helping us bring these individual chapters or narratives, if you will, to life. So it wasn't as if you know we were looking for inauthentic connections. We wanted legitimate connections to the Black community, to Black storytelling, and we wanted brands that supported that because it's work that they're already doing. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting parts I noticed throughout the project is that even the typeface that was used, like the the Halyard typeface, was done by a Black designer. That was done by a Black typography designer, Joshua Darden. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Every contributor we've used on the project and was very intentional was, and that was part of it, you know, was to elevate, not just in the storytelling, but elevate Black voices and creators, all of our illustrators, typographers, photographers, designers, writers are all Black contributors to the project. We have a a hub, which is where you can see the work. And within that hub, there is a page of contributors. So it's very clear, you can read each of those person's bio and, and have a better understanding of why we wanted to partner with them, why we work with them, the passion that they have for what they do. And that was important to us as well, to make sure that those were the voices that were elevating these stories. How has the project been received so far? It's been fantastic. I mean, we have had quite a bit of press around it. Our inaugural partner in the effort was Stars, uh, the network, and they told with us stories of leadership, Black leadership. So what we explored there was the journey and the pathway to how leaders are made in the Black community. Rather, it's, you know, when it starts from childhood, those moments of affirmation where you're basically told or you've taught, you've been taught things like, I am somebody, you know. Mm-hmm all the way through college where you maybe are a part of your first taste of being a part of a black student union or a fraternity or sorority, all the way to the boardroom where you could find yourself being the only person of color in an organization, but you have to kind of walk into the room with the same premise that Maya Angelou's taught us, which is I come as one, but I stand as 10,000, right? Mm. So knowing you have to bring your ancestral strength with you in order to be effective. So we explored this journey of leadership in partnership with STARS because they have an amazing program called Take the Lead, which is all about creating space for Black leadership and creators to emerge in the entertainment space. So it was a perfect alignment in that way for us to tell these stories together. Did you have a like a favorite story from the project? Yes. From this first go round, I think one of my favorite stories was about a teacher in Philadelphia who has taught her students a mantra called push through. And it was really great. We used uh, some of the actual soundbite of her doing the affirmation with her, her little second grade and third grade class, uh, which they do every morning. And that was a part of the pay post. So it was it was wonderful to be able to actually use the actual audio of her doing the affirmation. But I also remember myself as a child, your own parents telling you things like, you have to be smarter, you have to be better, you are somebody. Like, there were so many ways that your your family would teach you these like 
little affirmations, you know, basically to help you know that you were going into the room strong and and that you had a right to be there. And whether you knew it or not, in first, second, third grade, you know, that's essentially what was being instilled in you. So seeing someone, a young woman doing that today for this generation of children, it just kind of warmed my heart and some of the, uh, the writer's heart that worked on it when we kind of discovered her. Where do you see the initiative going next? I know you mentioned Stars kind of being the initial partner. Are there sort of other companies lined up that are going to talk about other stories as well? Yeah, we do. We have quite a few kind of uh, uh, partners out there, collaborators, brand collaborators that are looking at proposals right now and, and how we can you know align with them on their efforts. I think if we're successful, we'll have a chapter about uh, progress, you know, black progress and wealth. That gives us an opportunity to talk about things like the black elite or how there were whole communities. You know, people have created whole communities around uh, going to the vineyard and what that what that mm-hmm. looks what that whole lifestyle is like and the bonds that kind of, you know, tie those those individuals together it gives us an opportunity to talk about home ownership and some of the famous neighborhoods that were inhabited by or created by uh, black wealth, you know, things like Strivers Row in Harlem and how that was a bustling place of economic development and empowerment for for blacks. So that could be an angle that we have. Another brand that we're talking to uh, would allow us to explore stories of Black beauty. And a last one would be about a Black family. Hopefully, if those brand partners come on board, that becomes three more part chapters right there that we would be really happy to to see come to fruition. That's awesome. And I, I have to say, it's especially awesome seeing it come through such a large imprint like the New York Times, you know, that's yeah. really great. Yeah, it's amazing. When you look at your work, like, let's say, not necessarily with this project, but like at the New York Times in general, what would you say is is the hardest part about what you do? I really don't find there's a necessarily a hard part, but I do feel as though one of the things that 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 always I don't know, I'm always just so fascinated by is there's just so much richness of storytelling at the New York Times. You know, in, in my world, I feel like my responsibility is to just make sure that the work that the team is doing on our side, on the business side of the house, if you will, is befitting of sitting alongside that superior journalism. We want to make sure that we are continually rising and, and you know upholding the standards that we know that the Times is so famous for and so respected for. So we want to make sure that the way you know we do our creative work, our custom creative work in support of brands is indeed, you know, living up to that same standard and expectation. So I would say that's probably the hardest part, you know, because there's so much amazing journalism and innovation that comes out of the newsroom every day. It's just a matter of our team just kind of keeping up with it, if you will. Hmm. Let's switch gears here a little bit, because I want to know more about sort of your origin story, like how Vita became Vita. Tell me about where you grew up. I'm a Jersey girl. So I grew up in Neptune, New Jersey, which is a town on the Jersey Shore. One of five girls, no brothers, you know, (laughs) mom mom and dad, you know, both professional people. My mother was she sang some, you know, at the Met when I was a kid. She took opera like she sang in college and and Mm. took opera lessons and developed her voice and sang as part of the chorus at the Met when we were kids. So, you know, I got a kind of introduced to the arts and the fine arts early in life. I had an older sister who was an amazing painter, you know, and just as part of just a hobby, I guess you could say. But there was always some artistic pursuit 
going on in my house when I was growing up. My dad was an engineer, so he was a solid like science math person. So I guess that gave us a, cer- a certain amount of well-roundedness. It wasn't all artsy fartsy in the house, so to speak. <laughs> but, you know, but growing up, it, it was fun. You know, I mean, I felt like my family was very supportive, heavily into seeing us be comfortable with our education, pursuing, you know, our passions. So I never felt like I wasn't able to explore what an artistic kind of endeavor would look like. I had no idea that it would turn into a career in advertising. I was just a kid that just loved drawing and painting and doing things that felt creative to me, right? So as I got older, you know, going off to college was about having an opportunity to pursue art as a major in college. My parents weren't so fond of me going to somewhere like Parsons or or Pratt. You know, we went up to those schools I got in and they saw like one one uh, moment in a dorm where the kids were running around and it was like co-ed. They were like, forget it. <laughs> it, did, it, it didn't seem strict enough, you know, or, or whatever you want to call it. So they didn't like that as a pursuit for me. But I was able to go to Hampton because that's where my sisters had gone. So there was a okay. little bit of family legacy there. So I went to Hampton, but I was still able to pursue art. And at Hampton, I, I got a great background in education. And in, in, uh, at the time, it was called commercial art or graphic design. So I, I thought I was going to eventually go to come back to New York, come back to the East Coast and go work in New York and design album covers. That was my big plan. But I had a professor who basically told me, no, you need to pursue advertising. You have ideas like an art director. And I was like, what is this mystery career? I'd never even heard of being an art director. I didn't know what that was. And he explained to me, you know, you make commercials, you make print ads, you you take great trips, you know, you go and stay in hotels for weeks at a time while you shoot a commercial. And I was like, this sounds like a a dream job. You know, (laughs) I had no idea. He was like, yeah, you need to go to graduate school, really work on your portfolio, because right now your portfolio is strictly designed. You know, they need to see you can think about ideas. You know, you need to be able to craft ideas. So I I pursued uh, going to graduate school. And at the time, University of Illinois was one of the better schools for an advertising degree. Now, it wasn't advertising creative like what we now know of, say, schools like the Creative Circus or you know, Portfolio Center or VCU Ad Center, those schools came much later. But at the time, University of Illinois had a very solid program in terms of you getting a master's in advertising. So that's what I did. So I was able to go there on scholarship, which was which was great for me. I had a wonderful batch of teachers who I was kind of the guinea pig of the kid who who wanted to do creative, but there wasn't necessarily a specific creative track in the graduate program. So they kind of mashed up a few classes for me in addition to the required classes in order for me to get my master's, but still get a creative portfolio coming out of it. So it was really good. Did some internships while I was there. But I definitely feel like probably the biggest thing I learned at University of Illinois that as a, as a Black woman in this industry, I would later come to find out was pivotal for me was my scholarship required that I teach, you know, undergraduate students. So I taught, you know, two days a week and, and it was it was brutal because I had to teach myself the class before I could teach them. You know, I didn't I had to teach myself the material and then teach the class. But what it forced was me basically presenting a couple times a week, like getting up in front of a lecture class and and talking and presenting. 
So what later on in my career, I would realize is that that was the groundwork for me being able to really feel comfortable presenting. And as a creative person, that is one of the things that will make or break your career is your ability to present your ideas and be confident in presenting your ideas and being a storyteller. So I really, really value that experience for that reason, you know, more than anything. Yeah. Let's go back a bit to Hampton, because I know you you mentioned you had sisters that went there, so there was some sort of form of legacy for you going there. What was it like going to Hampton during that time? Because I'm, I'm imagining this is around like the early 90s when there was so much, and maybe I'm just remembering this from back then, like, I felt like there was a lot of, not hype, that's not the right word, excitement, I guess? around attending HBCUs, like you had the the AACA sweatshirts and like, it felt like there was this really big push on like graduate and go to a black college because it's lit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, hey, we, used to, we used to have all the bootleg shirts, you know, like Hampton, just do it, you know, with the swoosh. I'm sure, I'm sure that the licensing department at Nike would have been very upset to know that there was a whole string of uh, T-shirts that you could buy in a variety of colors with their logo on it. But we had all that kind of stuff going on. And you're absolutely right, because at the time that I was at Hampton, A Different World was on television. Mm. And it was literally like we would all run back to the dorm and watch A Different World. And it was almost as if the writers of that show had been on campus. You know? <laughs> it, it was like they were writing about our lives, you know, literally. And we were looking at it in real time, like, we had a munchie shop where everybody went and hung out, a little campus grill. You know, we had the step shows. We had the Greek life. So everything was, it was, I don't want to call it a golden time, but it was definitely a fun, vibrant time to be at HBCU. For me personally, I did pledge, you know, Delta Sigma Theta. Very, okay. very um, proud of that. And so that also gave another layer of, of texture to my college experience because, you know, of course, pledging a Greek letter organization on an HBCU campus is probably like as HBCU as it gets, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. that, that is like the quintessential experience. But, but yeah, you know, having sisters there, my mother went to Hampton, you know, it was definitely a school that I was very familiar with. So I felt like I was, you know, in, in very familiar territory and going to school there. And the school itself, in terms of how it was run, everything you've probably heard about HBCUs is, is, is fairly true. You know, there was curfew. You weren't able to be out if you were a freshman after a certain time at night. There were all kinds of superstitions and, and things like if you walk across Ogden Circle, you won't graduate. You know, <laughs> you know those are all parts of the culture and, uh, you know, just the narrative of, of what made the school so great. Yeah. I went to Morehouse and. I definitely, you know, I was, I mean, I was a teenager during that time, sort of watching, well, I was a kid becoming a teenager during the times when like a different world was on. And then there certainly was this big push to go to a black college. Cause one at the time, my mom worked at a black college. Like she taught biology at a black college. So it, it was, and she, she graduated from a black college. She went to Talladega university. So there was no, there was no really other choice. Like I applied to other places, but the huge implication was that like, you're going to a black college, like in the story. But so I know what you mean about, you know, you get on campus and you learn all these mythologies and superstitions and things like that. But it's such a, I mean, it's such a magical place. And then the fact that you were studying design there back when we had a blog on revision path, I remember we did a whole 
thing about Hampton's design department and how many people they've graduated that have went on to do great things in the industry. So Hampton has a really rich legacy of generating like black designers and artists and, you know, folks like you, like really it's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even gonna, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, some of the great, we, we got some exposure to some amazing artists, you know, at Hampton. I mean, John Biggers painted the mural in the library and all of us that were students at the time got to assist him because uh, mm. he, he was the artist in residence. So, and Hampton's uh, museum has some of the, you know, most, they have like an amazing collection of black artists uh, that's been curated. So I feel like the art program, the arts has always been something that Hampton respected. And, you know, many of us that were studying art, you know, I just I just remember it was like people would look at the art students because we all walked around with our little plastic cases, our little art bin. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, our classes were over in Armstrong Hall, which was sort of out of the cut, you know, but it was where, you know, the 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 uh, what do you call it? The pottery studio was. And that's where the architecture students were. And that's where, you know, where all the open loft live drawing classes were. So it was like such a mystery to all the rest of the student body because we were like the kids that were in there creating. So it was um, it was a good time, though. It was definitely a good time to be at a school like that. I feel you 100 percent because I went to a summer program at Princeton and, you know, they they pursued me coming there. But there was, I don't know, there was just some, I mean, little, I mean, it was Ivy League. I probably should have thought differently about that, but I really felt like Hampton was home in some way. So that's where, that's where I ended up. So going back to University of Illinois, you graduated in 94, you left grad school. What was the next step? Like what were those sort of early post-grad years like for you? Yes, I I ended up when I was in grad school, I ended up having an internship at Uniworld in New York, which was a great experience, worked with some amazing people there, learned from some wonderful people. Valerie Graves, who is a legend in advertising, was was my boss at the time when I was an intern. So I learned a a ton from her. But, you know, when they they offered me a job after school, but, you know, I really wanted to go somewhere else because I felt like I would be forever the intern, you know, just that kind of psychology. So I ended up getting an offer from their competitor at the time, which was Burrell Communications Group. So I got very fortunate in that coming right out of graduate school, I was able to land a job pretty easily. I had it in my mind that I was going to be like Angela from Who's the Boss? You know, (laughs) I had a suit. I had the big portfolio case, you know, (laughs) what the ad world actually looked like. You know, my my whole impression of the ad world was what I had seen on television, you know, people wearing suits and and being frazzled all the time. When I got to Chicago, you know, I was offered the job at Burrell. I went to Chicago to to pursue that. And it was a great training ground. I worked with amazing people there. At the time, Burrell was on the top of their game. They had all the major accounts, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Sears, Bell South, which was pretty much like the Verizon of that time. What other clients did we have? You know, we didn't do too much. I mean, Tom Burrell had a pretty strong feeling about things like cigarettes and malt liquor, you know, advertising to black people. So he didn't he didn't really accept too much work like that. But it was a great experience being able to kind of cut my teeth, if you will, at Burrell. I was able to do some pretty big commercials that still are like cult classics for some people in the in the hip hop community, you know. Yeah, you did the the Obey Your Thirst campaign for Sprite. Yeah, yeah some Sprite work, you know, that's kind of funny that to see young people that are 
playing it on YouTube and, and considering it a classic, you know, and it's like, that's like your first piece of creative out of college, you know, <laughs> but, but there were so many, you know, fun things about just learning back then. You just felt like you were a sponge, you know, you just learning so much. So that was a great experience. So I was at Burrell for a good, I want to say I was at Burrell I'm almost 10, no, maybe five or six years. I can't remember. I, I think I left there in 99 and then went to DDB. And DDB Chicago was a general market agency. At the time, it's kind of like you start in general in multicultural, but you know, the bigger fish, the bigger pond to be in was was general market. You know, everybody wanted to get to a big general market agency. That was like the stamp of approval, you know, that you were a real creative if you were able to get to a general market agency. So getting into DDB Chicago was, you know, a big step up, you know, big stepping stone to be able to work on national accounts accounts that were not meant to be just for the black audience, but the general market audience, mm-hmm. you know, bigger budgets, things like that. But what came with that was a sense of loneliness and isolation, you know, being one of 120 or so creatives and you're the only only black, you know, maybe one of three is hard, you know, oh, wow. incredibly hard when you're not even 30 years old and you're trying to figure out like, OK, who how do you navigate this? How do you know if you have people who are really in your corner or people who want to sabotage you? And even though DDB's culture wasn't like some other agencies at that time, it was definitely a norm to know that creative departments were incredibly competitive. You know, people would steal each other's work. People would shred their work at night because they didn't want their work stolen, things like that. You know, all those kind of myths were somewhat true in some places. Fortunately, I didn't run across much of that. But I did still feel like I had to be really, really good in terms of my talent and feeling very secure in my talent in order to survive it, you know, survive that. People were shredding their work at night? Uh Uh-huh. Not at DDB, but other agencies. There were some other agencies where that was kind of like notorious. That was sort of well known that the culture was very competitive in that way. Wow. That's like cutthroat. Very much, you know. (laughs) <laughs> Goodness. So you, you were at DDB for almost a decade, like aside from the cutthroatedness of it, like what do you remember the most from that time? I mean, DDB, I, I learned, it taught me a ton, you know, besides for the fact that I worked with some good people there. I worked with some people who really were interested in seeing me develop and they were really interested in seeing my career take off. There was one real defining moment that I can always play in my brain because it was one of those type of things where, you know, someone is mentoring you and they're kind of preparing you for a moment, but you don't even really know it at the time. I had a boss that, you know, I was kind of like the sidekick, right? Whenever he needed somebody to prepare the bag for the presentation or get the work together, you know, it was always like, Vita, I need you to do that, right? So initially, I kind of felt like, am I being asked to do this because I'm kind of like the lackey, because I'm the only girl on the team, like, because I'm the responsible one, you know, I I had no idea, but Ultimately, what it allowed me to do was be able to always see all of the work. I had an opportunity to see all of the work and he would ask my opinion of the work. You know, once I put the bag together, made sure all the scripts were there, made sure all the boards were there, made sure there was no typos. It was almost like I knew the work better than he did because I was spending more time with it. Mm. And, you know, I would prepare the bag I would go with him to the meeting. I would sit in the back of the room, you know, because he was doing the presenting. 
And, you know, I got to see firsthand how he presented, how the client responded to his presentation, how the work went over, what ideas landed, what ideas fell flat. And I didn't know it was a training at the time, but it was a training. You know, I was getting to see it firsthand. My colleagues weren't, my peers weren't. So that was kind of the trade-off for me being the person that always had to stay the latest to make sure the bag was ready for the meeting and all that kind of thing. And one day that training kind of kicked in because I was going to a meeting at McDonald's and he happened to have the bag, but I always kept copies. You know, I always made sure I had Xerox copies of everything that was in the bag. So we had a way of making sure nothing got left behind. And so I had my, my copies, you know, with me, like I always did. And we got a call that, that he had been in a car accident, so he wasn't going to make it to the meeting. So the whole team obviously was panicking, meaning myself, the account people. I was just a sidekick, you know, and he basically was like, well, Vita's there so she can do it. She knows the work. She can present it. And I was like, OMG, like what? (laughs) I think at that point, the account people were like losing it, too, because I wasn't seen as someone who was a stand in for the boss. You know what I mean? But it was my my shot. You know, that was my shot. Right. As they say in Hamilton, I'm not going to lose my shot. That was it. I didn't know it. But I went in. I had my little Xeroxes. Uh, We quickly rallied and got the Xeroxes distributed, like printed more copies and got them distributed. Yeah, I did what I saw him do. And we ended up selling a campaign. The client was very happy, told my boss that I was amazing and all that. And the account team thought I was amazing. And shortly thereafter, I got promoted (laughs) and it it became upward trajectory from there. So those kind of moments, I think, were defining for me at DDB. It definitely changed the trajectory of my career. Being a person of color, being a black woman or a black young person in an environment like that, you're not given that many people who want to really groom you, per se. You know, so you you have to either absorb it on your own or figure out ways to just be in the right place at the right time. You know, there's a lot you have to do to kind of rely on yourself. And I got pretty comfortable with the idea that, you know, I may never have anyone who is going to like choose me. Right. So I need to just make sure that whenever I am chosen, I'm ready. (laughs) I think that's kind of the philosophy I kind of took on from there. Then I got paired with a really, really great partner We worked together for a long time, a young guy named Skip Trey Montana, and the two of us like did a a gazillion TV spots together and slept on the floor of our office and banged out ideas and, you know, had the quintessential like young creative experience at DDB. But the two of us kind of rose up in the ranks together because we were a good team. We we understood our clients. We understood how to sell work. And that was that was a really fun experience. And then, you know, we kind of went our separate ways because he took a different job and I ended up getting, you know, promoted again and and started managing more people and having more responsibility. And my career kind of just went forward from there. Most of my time spent at DDB towards the end of my time there. I was doing a lot of new business, a lot of big new business pitches, you know, working across the agency as a whole. I was able to... um, Probably one of the things I was most proud of there was working on a project for Budweiser because it was so outside of the the norm of what they were trying to do. They were trying to reach like young adults, millennial, multicultural millennial adults. 
so it gave us an opportunity to really, you know, kind of do something very different for them, which which turned out to be highly successful. So it was um, working on beer was nothing that I was like aspiring to do. But mm-hmm. at, the time, at DDB, the beer accounts were kind of like the holy grail. So being able to work on something there, pitch it, win it, successfully launch it was like a big kind of feather in the cap, you know, for this for this little black girl for the from the 35th floor. <laughs> <laughs> By the time you left DDB, you got 15 years in the game working at two well-known agencies doing a lot of like really big accounts. And then from there, you've worked at several other agencies and companies. You did a stint at Global Hue. You did a stint at Walton Isaacson. You were at the Walt Disney Company even for a while. And of course, now you're at you're at the New York Times. When you look back at those past experiences after leaving DDB, what would you say are the most valuable things that you learned about yourself? Yeah, I think each of those positions or, or, or moves, if you will, taught me something different. I mean, for sure, when I went to Global Hue, it was like right after the Obama election. And I was hell bent on like, you know, black agencies are going to take the world by storm and I want to lead the charge. And I was fired up. I was fired up to do something to really prove that. Black agencies were not, you know, subpar. And going to Global Hue was a almost like a perfect storm of events that allowed us to win the Jeep account while I was there. That was the first time a black agency was helming a massive general market account and one that was a truly beloved brand, you know, American brand, Jeep. And we really, really dug our heels in and flipped, turned it around, had some incredible wins on that business, helped grow that business. But I learned there that you don't always get the credit that you're due, even no, no matter how hard you work on something. That was the hard lesson there. You know, even though I made some incredible friends, not just in the agency itself, but in the client space and vendor space, you know, there were so many people that were rallying around us to just see us win, you know, because we were trying to do great things and great work. But in the end, you know, sometimes the world at large, the industry at large doesn't give you the credit that you deserve. When I moved over to Walton Isaacson, it was, again, an opportunity to try and build something, to try and bring a point of view. But again, you have to learn that sometimes, you know, if your name is not on the door, it's not your dream to really try and bring to reality. You know, you have to sometimes understand that your aims or your ambitions as a creative person and what you see is not necessarily in line with the person whose name is on the door. So you have to be okay with that and uh, find a way to be diplomatic about how you do exercise your leadership and authority. And then in going to places like Disney, that was an opportunity for me to learn about a brand from the inside out. That was an opportunity to pivot away from agency life where you're in a, a more service role, you know, service in service to your clients, that is, to be in on the brand side of the table where you're literally setting the aims and mission that you need, you know, brought to life by your agency partner, right? So being on that side of the table uh, gave me a more deep purview into what makes for sustainable creative ideas, what makes for, you know, building loyalty amongst an audience and also building loyalty amongst, you know, the people that work in an environment with you. If there's one thing I'll say about the culture of Disney is, is that I love the fact that it is one where they are very loyal to their employees in terms of people love the brand, people who work there love the brand and they're loyal to it. So that was something that really helped me see the value of how much more passionate people are when they believe in what you're doing 
And, you know, it made me see that you can't fake the funk sometimes, right? You have to believe in what you're doing too. And if you don't move on and now, you know, being, and also being at Disney, it it gave me an opportunity to really see the value of storytelling because Disney as an entity is really about storytelling. Mm. Um, Coming to New York Times is telling a different type of story, right? Is getting to see the stories of truth, of life, of journalistic integrity, and being able to bring that kind of philosophy to the work that we do with brands. But for myself, it's always about learning. It's always about expanding my own capability and and getting back to that notion of mastery, being able to master something, (laughs) you know, your voice, your creative process, your ability to ideate. All those things are, in my in my opinion, very important. Being a creative person and how you kind of formulate your own way of working. What is the advertising industry like for you at this stage of your career? I mean, you have. It sounds like you've done it all, pretty much, except run your own agency. Like you've managed to to start as an intern and you've worked your way up to being, you know, vice president of creative at the New York Times. Like. When you look out at the the landscape of the ad industry now, what do you see? Mm, what I see now is, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, what I miss is, you know, and it'll sound old school, I'm sure, to anyone that's listening. But, you know, there was a certain kind of beauty and real magic in finding an idea that a client would want to stay with for a while and replicate and and build their brand around. You know, now we live in a space where, it's a lot more immediate. You know, we're living in a space that's social, it's faster, it's it's a much quicker kind of connection that that needs to be made, you know, because of people's attention span or just what we've become accustomed to, you know, how much time we want to really spend absorbing something. So uh, to that end, it feels a little bit at times like advertising is is chasing the horse, you know, is chasing <laughs> is chasing something, whether it's a new platform or how to capture an audience with a very short attention span or battling the fact that our, you know, for our attention on a variety of devices. Sometimes you just, I kind of miss the notion that you can build a brand through an idea. You can build an idea over time because a lot of times time is not something that people are willing to give you anymore. But what I do look at in terms of how advertising is different in this landscape is I love the fact that video and connecting through video and photography and storytelling formats that are visually driven are something that, you know, is is very appealing to me personally. I love film. You know, I always have loved film and video. So anytime we can create things in that kind of format, whether it's short form, whether it's documentary style. I still find that probably to be the most appealing and and satisfying for myself personally. What are you excited about at the moment? I'm excited about seeing more diverse voices actually be brought to the forefront. I mean, even though it's not directly related to advertising, I love the fact that there's so many more uh, black storytellers writing shows, TV shows, episodic television, film, that more voices are coming to the forefront because it does have a trickle down effect. You know, that representative storytelling is real. You know, when we can see that there are audiences that are craving more than just the narratives that have been previously being fed to them, it gives us an opportunity on the advertising space to really find legitimate connections to audiences and bring new ways of telling stories to brands, you know. I think that's really important. So I'm loving seeing all the different types of of creators that are out there, whether it's 
people on TikTok who are making a name for themselves on TikTok in some way, shape, or form, all the way up to creators like your Lena Waits and Issa Rae's and now James Samuel. I love I love this the new movie that has just come out. You know the spaghetti western, and seeing you know people of color in in a variety of types of storytelling formats, and those voices coming forward. I still need to see that movie. You're talking about The Harder They Fall, right? It just came out fairly yeah. recently. I need to see that. So funny you mentioned TikTok. I don't want to say obsessed with TikTok because that sounds a bit too much, but I am really enjoying TikTok. I've actually even found some guests for the show on TikTok, just like randomly going through my For You page and I'm like, oh, who is this? Oh, this it's a black person that painted the world's largest mural. Let me talk to them and get them on the show or something like that. But it's been really interesting seeing like how people have come up on these new mediums. I mean, before TikTok, it was what? It was YouTube. It was podcasting. It was blogging. That part kind of blows my mind a little bit. Like a lot of people now who maybe are kind of thought leaders or, or really progressive journalists. Now, I remember when they started out on Blogspot. You know, and they work their way up now to book deals and television shows and podcasts and all this sort of stuff. It's amazing to see. Yeah, and they have these, um, you know, I mean, I know it's not a new thing anymore, but the uh, influencer houses, you know, where they're kind of like influencers coming together, living together, creating their own like collective. Yeah. Um, to create content. I know there's one in Atlanta that is you know, all young black creators. I'm, I'm missing the name right now, but. Oh, the collab crib. The collab crib. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I think that kind of stuff is really inventive, you know, for young people finding a way to, you know, basically monetize what they know, you know, about culture and, and the stories that they want to tell. So, you know, it is fascinating to see how these platforms have enabled so many young people to kind of find themselves, find their way, you know, find their audiences. Yeah. Speaking of collab crib, New York Times plug, go to Hulu for folks that are listening. Go to Hulu. The New York Times presents a whole documentary on the collab crib called Who Gets to Be an Influencer. Definitely go check it out. Correct. They sure did. <laughs> if there's someone that's out there listening, they are hearing the Vita Cornelia story and they want to follow in your footsteps. Like what advice would you give them? Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's like, let's see what what things should they do now? <laughs> um, you know, real talk, I would say some of the things I wish I had known then that I know now is that the ability to really listen and not get so deep into what you think something should be that you can't absorb another point of view or a critique or a criticism is something I wish I had learned very, very early on. It took me banging my head against the wall a few times, you know, in the very early stages of my career before I fully understood that and the value of that. So I would definitely say that's important. The other thing that I would also say is important is your integrity, your character is all you have. Don't ever let anyone force you to sacrifice that or put you in a position where you feel like you need to sacrifice that because, you know, at some point in your career and life, it will come back to haunt you. I've seen it happen to other people. It hasn't happened to me, but I have seen it happen to other people where they literally have to eat those words. You know, they've treated someone a certain way and then they find out later on in life that that person is in a position to either hire them or they're the client now or whatever. And I've literally seen that. So always know that, you know, being kind being gracious is important, that that's more powerful than being uh, someone who wants to lead by fear or, or bring fear into an equation that never, that never works. 
I would definitely say to someone, try and understand and appreciate your worth early on. You know, what makes you different? What makes you someone that has something to say, that has a voice. I mean, at one point when I was um, a chief creative officer at Global Hue, you know, I would interview people. Maybe this isn't appropriate to ask now, but I would interview people by saying, you know, when you come to the interview, wear at least one piece of clothing or an item that has some meaning to you. You know, I'd love to know the story of it. And one of the reasons I asked people that was because I wanted to, number one, get a sense of who they were, you know, outside of the work that they do, you know, the things that were in their portfolio. But I also wanted to know what had meaning to them. And I'll never forget a guy came in in the middle of winter wearing a white linen suit. <laughs> I said, wow. I said, well, why did you choose to wear that? And he said, well, this is the suit that I got married in. And, you know, besides for the fact that my wife was my best friend, I mean, this suit reminds me so much of how happy and how joyous I felt on that day and how complete I felt on that day. And whenever I need that feeling, I remember this suit. I remember this day. And so that just like told me a lot about him, you know, and who he was. So I really liked doing that because it kind of gave me a way of having a better understanding of people's unique value and what's important to them and and the things that are never going to show up in their resume, but can become very valuable as part of their experience in the work environment, you know, and in the place of work. So I guess a a short story for someone listening to this would be, be true to yourself, (laughs) be kind, be generous, know that the people that you're working alongside right now could be people that you need to reach up to or reach back for in the future. And those are probably the things that I think have sustained me, you know, so. Who are some of the people that have influenced you? I know you mentioned like a couple of coworkers. You mentioned this professor at Hampton. Were were there other people that have really like influenced and mentored you throughout your career? I would say, you know, I, I never had any direct mentors, like anything that was like a formal per se mentor relationship. But I definitely had people who I felt like invested a lot in me or poured poured in me, whether it was family friends, personal friends, people who had nothing to do with advertising at all. Probably one person that I can definitely speak to or speak about is uh, someone named Bob Sales. He was a very, very good friend at Burrell, and he was our head of print production. But besides for him just being an amazing person at, at work, I mean, he was just the most generous, gracious person. He had a most he had the most full uh, life. He, he could make a friend anywhere he went. You know, he was just that person. I mean, he had that that hearty, big laugh that you can hear ringing in your ears, you know, like well after he's left the room. And I just learned so much from him about people and about what makes people feel important to you, you know, how to connect with people, not just, you know, when you work with them, but but in just understanding them and really being able to look inside and, and see the truth that people have and what they what what value they can bring to a situation. So to me, he he kind of taught me more about human nature, I think, because of his personality and the way he was and, and the type of person that he was and the amount of time that we spent together as friends. And that became something that I kind of actually use as part of my creative process. You know, when I'm not fully clear on who is this audience I'm speaking to or who is this person I'm trying to write this ad for or connect with in some way, shape or form, I have to figure out what is the truth, you know, that connects that person to whatever it is I'm trying to, to promote to them. Right. I have to figure out what is the truth that they would believe. 
So I kind of lean back on my time with him as a way of kind of doing my research and digging around to better understand what motivates people, what makes them tick and how that makes them feel seen. He was excellent at making people feel seen. Where do you think your life would have gone if you didn't go into advertising? Oh, if I hadn't gone into advertising, probably when I was at that summer program at Princeton, I would have solidly moved into being some type of lawyer because I was definitely interested in writing. I was definitely interested in um, not necessarily justice, like criminal justice or anything like that, but just the pursuit of fairness in some way, shape or form. I was always intrigued by that. So I probably would have ended up being a lawyer in many, many years. Like now we're going to fast forward, you know, like 30 something years. I mean, now I picked up a love of flowers and floral arranging when I lived in Chicago and had a little side hustle business of doing flowers, which ended up, long story short, landing me doing flowers for Obama for one of his uh, presidential election dinners, you know, like dinners. Yeah, it was like, and that bug right there, never, I never shook it. So, I mean, now in hindsight, plan B, I mean, if I fast forward my plan B going forward after my life, after the advertising, I would love to just own an amazing flower shop somewhere when, you know, when it's not about earning money, but it's just about being able to get up somewhere and get up and go somewhere every day that you just really, really love. But yeah, if I hadn't found advertising, I'd probably be a lawyer. Now that I've found advertising, been there, and I could say I've done that, <laughs> I would love to probably pursue something a lot gentler on the soul, like uh, like being a florist. I could see it. I mean, I, I oh, God, I, God, what was the show? I was watching Project Runway, and they yeah. just had a designer on there, this guy, Lewis Miller, that does these like huge like gorilla flower installations in New York City. Have you heard of this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he'll do like he'll take a a phone booth or something and just turn it into like this explosion of flowers and stuff. That could be pretty cool. What do you want your legacy to be? Like, where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Ooh, in the next five years. You know, honestly, I really would love to do more. You know, hopefully I will continue to be with the times. You know, I'm going to say that put that in the universe, but I would love to continue pursuing, you know, how can we do more film? I'd love to get into things like documentaries, more episodic film franchises, you know, really expanding on the notion of how a brand can show up and be relevant in culture and be of service to culture, you know, so finding innovative ways to do that. But I also think that it's really important from a legacy standpoint to just continue to pave a way for young people, you know, particularly young black people and making them feel like they deserve to be in these spaces, that when they come in these spaces, that they're prepared, they know what they how they want to show up in their in their best as their best self, their whole self, you know, not feeling like they have to be something that they're not in order to fit into these environments, but know that their voices need to be here and need to be heard but also how to be effective in doing that. So if I'm able to leave a legacy of, of being able to help another young person be the next Vita or be the next other ad person, you know, who, who's kind of like climbed up in the ranks here and there, then I'm happy to do that. I, I feel like it's important for me to teach at this point and, and pave the way for others. I'm very proud of a mentee that I had at the New York Times who, although he chose not to stay at the Times, is doing very, very well in his new role 
And it makes me super proud to know that all the conversations that we had, all the plans that we laid, you know, he, he put it in motion and it, and it worked. So my goal is to just leave a legacy of, of, uh, the literal teach one, you know, each one teach one if I can. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm always available on LinkedIn. That's the fastest and easiest method. You know, I do have a, w- a website, vitacornelius.com. I can't say it's updated at the moment. I hate to say that, but, you know, I've been doing so much work as of late. I haven't had a chance to, to update it in a little while, but I will. But those are, yeah, for sure, two spaces that you can find me. If you just want to peek in on my dog, my French bulldog, which I love a lot. His name is Leo. You're more than welcome to find me on Instagram as well. But I don't do too much work talk on there. <laughs> okay. What's the dog Instagram? He's just on my page, Vita.C. But my dog's name is Leo. Yeah, he's very cute. And he's going to be featured in one of our upcoming articles on departures which is one of the big projects I do with our special projects team. All right. Vina Cornelius, thank you so much for coming on the show. One, just for like sharing the rich career that you've had in the advertising industry. I think certainly for people that are listening to this, it's always, I always try to get people that are at all stages of their career, whether they're just starting out or whether they're sort of captains of industry like you are. So it was great to just hear about your journey as a black woman in this industry, but also to hear about how you're really about making sure that you pave the way for the next generation. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where certainly we sort of walk the road to make sure that the next generation has a much easier path. So I certainly think that with the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do, that you're helping to make that happen. So thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I love what you're doing. I think it's so important. So I'm happy to be an installment in what I would say is your legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Preserving all of our stories. Big, big thanks to Vita Cornelius, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Vita and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is hosted, created, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about Revision Path overall? We would love to hear from you. If you're on social media, don't be a stranger. We are on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show, because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.